This is the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. That's Dr. Jana over there. She is a uh, world-renowned sex scientist. <laughs> I am not. How are you, Dr. Jana? I'm well. I'm excited about today. I know you're super excited because you have one of your like BFFs on the show. Yeah, scientific BFFs. Scientific BFFs. <laughs> so, and we, before we get to that, though, I want to mention the Patreon page because I was actually on your Patreon page mm-hmm. the other day. Yeah. And I saw that people are starting to contribute to it. Yes, they are. So please contribute. So what is it? For people who don't know what a Patreon page is, what's it all about? It's a way to support the content creators that you like, the people who are doing podcasts or writing things or creating other forms of online and well, maybe offline content. And it's a monthly subscription. So if you've not seen it yet, it's patreon.com slash Dr. Jana. There's a sexy photo of Dr. Jana splayed against a wall. I'm not sure where that There's was There's a nice from. video too. There's a nice video too. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I'm talking about the, that photo, the one that when you're splayed against oh, the wall. Yeah. yeah, I like that photo. Yeah, I like that photo. Mm-hmm. I've seen you use it a couple of times. Yeah, it's a sexy photo. All right. All right, so all right, so now I'm done complimenting you for the day. Tell but yes, some- if you like what we do here, what Joe and I are doing here, please do support us through Patreon. Cool. So tell us about your BFF we're going to talk to today. <laughs> oh, my God. We're going to talk to Dr. Justin Miller from Ball State University about a new study that he published with Dan Savage mm. and Dr. David Lay, who's a sex therapist out of Nevada, about gay cuckolding. Hmm. That's I've, all I'm going to say for now. That's all. That's a good tease. I like yeah. that. The Science of Sex. Foreplay. All right, Dr. Jana, let me get right to it. I know you really don't have an office job. You're one of those you know, fancy professors and all, but nine in ten co-workers admit sexual activity in their office. Ooh. Nine in ten. You see what you're missing out of being in a college? <laughs> you're missing out all this fun and frivolity in your office. Look, look, I have an a shared office, an adjunct office space that I share with other adjuncts. Does that count? It's like a brainy office. I'm talking about a job where there's like a a curing machine that works like three out of five days and you run into people and you have people, you know, small talking you in the hallways. That's the kind of office I'm talking about. Okay. Okay? So this new survey of more than 20,000 employees uncovered that nearly 90% of them admitted to some form of sexual interaction in their office. Okay, that's a very high percentage. First of all, let me get the the basic straight. This we're talking about tw- 20,000 employees from the UK. Correct. And this is a survey done by Saucy Dates. Yeah, you're not familiar with Saucy Dates? Saucy Dates. <laughs> it's a dating app. It's a dating app. Okay, yeah. so this is not a published study in the academic literature. It's a survey done by dating app Saucy Dates about Work uh, sex. Well, oh, careful, careful. What? It's not actual sex. So they've they're well, it calling depends it depends on how you define sex. Well, no, sex can be defined. Hold on, Bill Clinton. No, no, I'm calling. They're calling it <laughs> sexual activity. So okay, this so- this sexual sexual activity includes kissing, mm-hmm. masturbation, mm-hmm. oral sex, manual stimulation, and full on sexual intercourse. Mm-hmm. What I found funny was the percentage of people that admitted to doing all sorts of things. Because if you work in an office, it's hard to get privacy. You know, mm-hmm. there's always there's always people around, and the fact that some people are given you know hand jobs at the office, it's that's okay. So pretty amazing. Wait, we got seventeen percent had sexual intercourse. Okay. Okay. Seventeen percent. That's the a, most. Con- that's a pretty low number. Okay. But that's actually almost one in five people have right. had sexual intercourse at least once in the office. The most common location. 
private offices. Not surprising. Makes there sense. you go. There's there's your privacy. So there's no cubicle. It's not, not it's not the cubicle. break room. <laughs> it's not by the Keurig that works only three or five days of the week. Okay. That's good. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, one in three had kissed another coworker. Uh, one in five watched porn. Oh, here oh, I have an idea to that one why uh-huh. that's so low. Some offices block porn from coming into uh, the office. I see, I see. Aha. I've solved that one. <laughs> Say that? Restrooms were the scene of oral sex and masturbation. I guess not surprising. That's not very romantic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, what are you going to do? Those are the places that allow you some privacy. Own cubicle or office was seen of sexual intercourse and watching porn. Well, kissing most frequently took place in hallways and building exits. Yeah, I guess you have a little privacy there. You're probably maybe on your way out of the office and be like, hey, let's <laughs> let's sneak one out because maybe they're having an affair and that's like the last chance. Oh, is that? I'm really building that, the plot line here. Oh, yeah, but, you really are. But think about it. That's sort of like they, that's where they disembark. They're like, okay, before you go back to your other <laughs> and I go to mine, let's just do something here in the hallway here in the exit door. You see all the fun you you're missing out? You sound like you've had... Quite a bit of experience with this in your office well, career. Well, I did meet my sig other in, yeah. in the office. Oh, you did? Yes. Oh, interesting. So I can say I did, we didn't do a lot of the things mm-hmm. on this list. There was no, no hand jobs. Hand or, jobs there's none of that. There was none of that. There was no pornography viewing. We weren't doing, mm-hmm. we weren't uh, like Netflixing any. There wasn't. Porn didn't even exist back then, Oh, come did it? on now. Really? <laughs> And for, so I would say the kissing, obviously, and then, you know, in the private offices makes sense and the mm-hmm, exits, mm-hmm, sure. Mm-hmm. But the fact that people are, are going full on and having sex, that's pretty brazen. Yeah. I yeah, mean, you I hear mean, about it, but sure. it's, it's, that's ballsy. Look, people are sexual. And as much as we're trying to prevent them from being sexual in many circumstances, especially these days, we're talking so much about how we are trying to sterilize office environments and work environments from any kind of sexuality. That's not going to happen. Reality check, it's not going to happen. Whenever you have lots of people in an enclosed space working together, of course, there are going to be attractions and affairs and sexual interests. And I am not in the least surprised that these things are happening uh, at the at the level at, at which they're happening. And yes, of course, if people have private offices and have the ability to come early or stay after hours and there's nobody else, I mean, there's something incredibly exciting yes. about doing this somewhat taboo thing mm-hmm. when you might maybe get caught or, yeah. you know, it's like the rebellious thing to do. So one in five people responding that they've, had full-on intercourse in 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 the office is probably the number of people yeah. who would be excited and rebellious enough to find something like that. Do you think people are watching cuckolding porn in their office? Wait, wait, cuckolding? Do you even know what cuckolding is, Joe? Is that a cryptocurrency? <laughs> you wish. No, I actually just know the name because I see the title uh, when my friends are looking at pornography. Ah, right. When your friends are looking at porn, right? That's Got that's it. the only Got reason it. I know that. But I do mm-hmm. see that come up on like search boxes and such. Uh huh. Of your friends' computers. Friends' computer. Yeah. I'm looking over their shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Got it. What is goggling? I know it involves a couple and a third person being involved. Uh huh. And that and the one and I guess the husband or the significant other is the cuckold because he's watching 
his wife or girlfriend get it on with another man. Right. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're kind of getting there. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in the, I'm, am I in the, in the, the ballpark? The, the general ballpark. <laughs> All right. Yes, good. You good, got good. It. A new study just published in the journal Archives of Sexual Behavior investigated fantasies about and experiences with cuckolding in a large and diverse sample of gay men. The study was picked up by the media big time with CNN reporting cuckolding could be positive for some couples and Fox News and Breitbart and other conservative media <laughs> mocking CNN for doing it. So it's been a pretty fun uh, few weeks of following this. Nice. coverage. <laughs> so we're getting on the bandwagon, I see. All right, good. <laughs> of course. Now, another fun tidbit about the study is that one of its authors is someone who most listeners are probably quite familiar with, but who is not a scientist and has never really published this sort of an academic article before, and that's sex columnist Dan Savage. Wow. He's a sex rock star, isn't he? <laughs> he is a sex rock star, but not a, an academic. Okay. So it's kind of interesting to have him uh, as a co-author. Now, we don't have him on the podcast today, but right. we have the lead author author of the study, the guy who did most of the data. The legwork? The the data part of the, yeah, yeah, the data legwork uh, aspect of the study. And that is Dr. Justin Laymiller. Justin Laymiller received his PhD in social psych from Purdue University, and he's currently a director of the social psychology graduate program at Ball State University and a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute in Indiana. And I love Justin. He's one of my favorite people to talk to and hang out with at conferences and such. He has an amazing human sexuality textbook that he wrote and that I use in my class with my students and has this awesome blog laymiller.com about psychology of human sexuality. So he does a lot of amazing things in the area of sex education and sex research. So I'm super excited to have Justin on the show. I think you're almost too close to him. Are you going to be impartial during this? Remember, <laughs> you've got to be a sex science host here. I, I you can't know. be so soft on him, okay? I, I can do it. I can do okay, it. Man. I can do it. <laughs> Dr. Justin Laymiller, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So what is cuckolding exactly defined as? Very often we've I hear this word used to mean someone who's being cheated on kind of thing, like in the infidelity context, but it's not really infidelity, is it? Right. And I think the confusion there stems from the fact that historically a cuckold referred to a man whose wife was cheating on him with another man and had become pregnant by him. That's kind of the historical definition that people are often thinking of. But in modern times, the term cuckold really refers to this more consensual sexual practice where you've got one person who is sharing their spouse or partner with someone else sexually. And it's most commonly a man sharing his wife or girlfriend with another man. Um, But there are also women who are into this, gay men who are into it. It doesn't really know any gender or or sexual orientation. But it's, it's definitely the usage of the term in modern times is a consensual practice, not a form of infidelity. Historically, probably people couldn't even imagine something like that happening in a consensual context, right? Right. And so today, I think our our definition, our understanding of of marriage and relationships has changed and evolved a lot from what it used to be. So um, now it's something that people can actually envision and enjoy in a way rather than necessarily perceiving it as a threat to themselves or to their relationship or their livelihood. Right, right. So this is a form of consensual non-monogamy. Yeah, there are a lot of different types of consensual non-monogamy, swinging, open open relationships, polyamory. Um, but I see cuckolding as being distinct from all of them. So for example, if you look at something like swinging, uh, you have people who are swapping partners with another couple, and they might kind of go off and do their own thing. But in cuckolding, everyone is there together in the same room. And there's also often this component of 
BDSM to it, where you have one partner who is watching and is taking this submissive role and is not uh, a mutual equal participant in the scenario in terms of the the sexual interaction. So it, it's very different from swinging. It's also different from an open relationship where people might just kind of go off and do their own thing, um, not necessarily be sexually involved with their partner and someone else at the same time. And it's also distinct from polyamory, where you've got these multiple loving and committed relationships at the same time. So it's it's unique in that you have three people who are interacting together, but one is kind of taking that submissive role. And then there's also often that component of BDSM to it. When did it turn to an almost positive word? Because cuckolding <laughs> in the olden days was sort of like the, you know, the husband of an adulterous wife, and it was horrible. When did that turn happen there, Justin? Great question, and I don't know for sure. Uh, this is a you know pretty recent yeah. thing where we, we see people who are identifying as cuckolds and, and really enjoying this, and it's become this huge genre in porn. So it, it's sometime within the last 10 years or so that we've kind of really seen this emerge. But, you know, I can't pinpoint a specific year. Is this something kind of new, Uh, this uh, increased interest in in cuckolding? Because I think there's more, we we see it more and more in porn. We see it more and more uh, being written about. I actually get, I did one video on YouTube about uh, cuckolding, and I've gotten so many emails from both men and women who are exploring or interested in that lifestyle. So is your sense that this is something, this interest is increasing, or is it something that has always been around just not really talked about as much. So I think it's an interest that's been around for a long time, and you can find writings on it that date back many, many decades. Um, But it's one of those things where the internet has really given extra life to this interest like it has to many other sexual interests. Um, And people now have a name that they can apply to it, whereas maybe they didn't know what to call it in the past. And in fact, we see that in the psychological literature, cuckolding has gone by different names. It's often referred to as Troyalism uh, in in the literature. (laughs) Yeah, it's a (laughs) a terrible word. I don't know. I know. So I think part of it is just that now people have a better understanding of like, here's this consensual term that we can apply to this. And the internet has kind of allowed people to come together and create communities of of like-minded people. So uh, it's not a new interest by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it, it is something that we now have a language for. Maybe as we become more and more open to alternative forms of sexuality and kink and all that, maybe more people are are actually thinking about it and allowing themselves to have those kinds of fantasies, maybe. Right. I mean, it is possible. And um, I know that one of my co-authors on the research, Dan Savage, has talked about how just in recent years, he started to get more and more letters from gay men who are interested in cuckolding, suggesting that, hey, maybe this interest is on the rise. And if you look mm-hmm. at trends in Pornhub searches for cuckolding, we see that they are increasing. So it, it may be that there is a rising interest in this. We just, you know, we don't have historical data to right. say how many people were interested in, in, in it past. in the past compared right. to today. You mentioned gay couples and, and the study that you did that we'll, we'll talk about is about gay, gay couples. But for the most part, we've been talking and hearing about cuckolding in the straight couple context. Uh, Mm -hmm. What do we know about how this fantasy or this experience plays out in straight couples? Like you mentioned a little bit about the the humiliation, the BDSM context, but what are some of the themes that kind of run through this scenario? Another one of my co-authors on the study, David Lay, wrote a book a few years back titled Insatiable Wives, and it was all about... It's a great uh, book. I actually love that book. Yeah. Highly recommend it. Yeah, it's great reading 
Um, I'm waiting for the movie. Great summer reading, but it's great reading any time of year. Um, (laughs) But he interviewed dozens of of couples who were into cuckolding. These are all male, female couples and found that there were certain characteristics that seemed to go along with it. And he found that those elements of BDSM were, were a pretty prominent component. But he also found that in these cuckolding scenarios, the third person that was being invited into the bedroom who kind of goes by the name of the bull. That's kind of the terminology the that, that people use in mm-hmm. cuckolding. The characters are the bull, the hot wife, and the cuckold? Yeah, those would be... <laughs> are you casting different... a film here? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> Playing the role of the yeah. bull. Does the cuckold, is the cuckold, could that be the woman as well? Is that gender-specific cuckold? Like a, a woman watches her husband have sex with another woman? Or is it just strictly, when it comes to straight relationships, just the, the male is being cuckolded? So I've seen some people use the term cuck queen uh, when it's a woman who wants to watch her partner have sex with someone else. So so people seem to have different gendered terminology okay. depending on whether the person is male or female. But, but I think um, the vast majority of what this fantasy is in the in the popular kind of Almost mainstream. Or mainstream <laughs> yeah. or whatever, yeah. yeah, in porn and in any kind of stories that you would hear. It, most often you hear it in the guy being the cuckold. Yeah, yeah I just didn't know if By it was far. one of those non-gender specific words, but I guess apparently it is. Now, there's a cu- I've never heard of the yeah. cuck queen before, so that's... <laughs> yep, there you go. Learn something every day. <laughs> okay, so yep. paint a picture of what cuckolding looks like, at least in straight couples. <laughs> the person who's watching is taking on a... Uh, submissive role. And uh, they're often being humiliated by their partner in the process. Um, So their partner might talk about how the bull is uh, a much better lover than they are, or how the bull has a much bigger penis than than the cuckold does. Uh, There's also sometimes some um, bondage or restraint that is used so you know maybe wearing like chastity cages for the um the cuckold you know that mm-hmm. happens sometimes in porn so uh or them being restrained so they can't masturbate while they're watching kind of thing right or maybe there's some orgasm denial mm-hmm. or something so so there's a lot of different ways that bdsm might play out in uh cuckolding scenarios Okay. And what else? What are some other themes running through? Yeah. So there's often an interracial component in cuckolding porn and cuckolding fantasies. Um, So it's often a white man who is sharing his white wife or girlfriend with a black man, particularly a very well-endowed black man. Mm -hmm. Um, So so that's often another big component of it too. And there's kind of a forced or submissive kind of element of bisexuality and cum fetishizing from what I understand? Yeah, there's there's some of that too. Uh, so for example, the cuckold might participate in removal of the bull semen from his partner's vagina in this act of forced submissive bisexuality. That sounds so clinical. That's probably the most <laughs> clinical description <laughs> yeah. of cream pieing I've ever yeah. heard. <laughs> well done. Hey, I'm a scientist. So. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I do my best to take after Masters and Johnson in this regard. So <laughs> that was kind of really boring to read their books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they could have used a little more colorful language. But yeah. Well, look at the time they were doing it. It was a long time ago. True. If Masters and Johnson were around now, they'd be talking about cream pies. You know that. <laughs> sure. And hey, maybe they didn't have the term for it back then. So who knows. That's probably true. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> cuckolding as, a, as an interest, as a desire, a fantasy, has been discussed uh, in professional circles as, as a paraphilia or an unusual sexual interest or what most people would understand or know as, as a fetish, as a fetishistic interest. Is this 
classification fair? Is, is this kind of how we should think about cuckolding? Well, we have a tendency as psychologists to classify interests as paraphilic or unusual just because they sound unusual to us. <laughs> And oftentimes we don't have the data on how common or prevalent those interests are to really make that a valid distinction. So what my data on cuckolding suggests is that it's actually a pretty common interest. As part of this book that I wrote that's coming out this summer, It's called Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Um, I surveyed thousands of Americans about their sexual fantasies and found that more than half of men and more than a third of women had had cuckolding fantasies wow. before. And more than when, half of men and a third of women. Yep. Damn. And it's not a... It's not a representative sample of the population, sure. but even still, the fact that that many people are reporting these fantasies suggests that it can't be super uncommon or rare. Yeah, I mean, 50%, even if it's anywhere close to 50% in a more representative sample, that's certainly yeah. not unusual or rare. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Justin, do we know what the guys are getting out of it? I mean, is it just that BDSM thing where they just they feel like they, they they enjoy being humiliated? That's a great question, and that was actually my next question. It's funny, Joe never reads my my questions that I write for people. <laughs> I hate that you point that out because it makes it seem like I'm just like some goofball no, 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 who, who no, parachutes no, in here and doesn't know no, no, anything. No, but <laughs> sometimes, like very often, you actually ask the, the exact question that's next on the list. So I'm oh, really okay. impressed. Thank you. Yeah. All right, Justin, can you answer my impressive <laughs> yeah. question? <laughs> yeah. Why are people? Why are men into this? And I. I I know this is a question that I get very often from people who are not necessarily into cuckolding and they hear about it and they're like, what the hell? Like, why would anyone be into this? Yeah, so it, it's not just about BDSM. And I should clarify that not everyone who is into cuckolding has those BDSM interests. Um, and for for some people, it's really just about seeing their partner be pleasured and to get sexually fulfilled in a way that they might not otherwise do if it was just the two of them alone. Um, so, so seeing one's partner achieve this heightened level of pleasure, but also seeing somebody else who desires their partner so much, mm. um, you know, there, there's some validation that, that comes along with that. Like, you know, my partner is so hot, but, you know, she's going to come back to me afterwards, right? Right. Um, like people can't, res the other men, other hot well-endowed sexy men can't resist her kind of thing mm -hmm. but she still comes right. back to me yeah so I, i think there's there's some element of that that's at play um and and like i said also just seeing your partner achieve this high level of pleasure might be really arousing or a big turn on uh to you so th there could be a lot of different things that that make this appealing to people yeah there's some attempts to explain this interest or behavior with some evolutionary psychology yeah so One evolutionary theory behind cuckolding is the sperm competition explanation, um, Explain. which refers Joe's to the idea. What, like, was that? What was huh? that? Justin, say that term one more time. Sperm competition. Okay. Um, sperm yeah, fight the, each other. Wow. Yeah, no, he'll explain. <laughs> okay. It's like the sex Olympics, right? One sperm's faster than the other kind of thing. Sort of. Okay. Kind of. All right. Kind of. But but yeah, the basic idea is that it's thought that when Men are in situations where their sperm are going to be in competition with other men's sperm to fertilize the same egg, that it leads to certain behavioral and biological changes that might help your sperm outcompete those of, of other men. So, for example, there was a study published where they had heterosexual men watch 
either gangbang porn where there's like multiple men having sex with the same woman or they watched an all-female threesome and they masturbated to to orgasm they collected the ejaculate samples and what the researchers found was that men released more active sperm when they were watching the gangbang compared to the all-female threesome so that would be one example of sperm competition and, and by active sperm you mean motile sperm sperm that are swimming and capable of, of fertilization because not all sperm are made equal in the in the ejaculate of one single man, right? There are different types of sperm. Some are there to maybe help some of the other sperm. They're not all equally viable. They're not all going to make it. So some are... Man, you're, you're really testing my sperm knowledge here. <laughs> um. here's, a, here's, a, here's a dumb question from the non-scientists in the room. So you're telling me the brain can control the strength of sperm? Because that's basically what you're saying. It's the, the brain is firing on all these cylinders and, and it's accelerating the uh, motility of the sperm, as you said. That, and that's what the data seem to suggest, is that wow. there's some un, non-conscious automatic process that occurs that is... Um, it's like sperm Jedis. To, right. <laughs> yeah, if you, see, if you see all these other men being sexual with the woman, that means you, you're going to have to fight all these other men. Therefore, you have to bring more warriors and better warriors to the to the battle. Wow. <laughs> that would be one example of sperm competition. There are several others that have been documented. For example, when men suspect their wives of cheating, they engage in more vigorous and energetic thrusting the next time they have sex, which is supposedly thought to be a way that they might displace semen that had been deposited by rival men. So there are lots <laughs> of these potential indicators of, of sperm competition going on, not just in number of sperm release, but also in terms of men's behaviors. Right. So cuckolding kind of might be playing into into some of these things, that there's exactly. some I increased excitement or arousal or willingness to engage sexually with your partner after or in case in this case while she's being sexual with somebody else right so that's what evolutionary theory would tell us now whether that's true or what's actually going on we don't know for sure but that's one way of couching the findings in an evolutionary framework right, right. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be funny if they somehow you know how couples sometimes have trouble getting pregnant and stuff like that maybe cuckolding <laughs> improves the husband's sperm and then is able to impregnate his wife because he just watched his wife get being having sex with a bull oh my god i love this <laughs> sex therapist wow. of the world sex therapist listening to this yeah. this is what you should recommend to your infertile uh, couples yeah i mean that's the first thing i thought because a friend of mine is having trouble she's i think she's 35 and she's ha having trouble uh, getting pregnant and you know you know there's a lot of discussion as to what the reason would be but also sometimes has to do with sperm count and stuff like that but maybe if the the male decides to watch cuckling all of a sudden all that sperm gets fired up and then bam a pregnancy occurs. That's uh, is that. Am I the only one thinking this out loud, Justin? You're not. In, you're not in my uh, camp on this one. I, I am not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's just a scientist. He doesn't yeah. do applied work. He okay. leaves the applied work to other people. I just put two plus two together because you talked about how you know it improves, and all of a sudden it's like, wow! Now we can. Now we could put the end to infertility right now with cuckolding. <laughs> no, I know, but I got in enough trouble already as it was for um, my data suggesting that it could be good for people's relationships. Oh, so, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, you don't need more. Oh, so I see. Now I see why yeah. you're backing off. Otherwise, you'd be all, all, all up in my team. You'd be Team Joe all the way. I get it now. <laughs> see, this is the silliness I have to deal with. You thought it was a valid point. You <laughs> genuinely smiled and be like, hey, you know what? This idiot has a pretty good theory right there. All okay, right. okay, let's move. Let's move on, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so far, we've, we've kind of talked more about straight couples, and really until this study, I hadn't really heard much 
of cuckolding being discussed in the context of gay men. How did Dan Savage and David Lay, neither of whom are researchers for the most part, David Lay is mostly a sex therapist, book writer, and Dan Savage is a columnist. How did they get involved in all this? So it's a funny story. Um, David Lay and Dan Savage had kind of written a short paper together on the phenomenon of gay cuckolding based on some of Dan's observations that he made as a result of running his sex advice column. And he'd gotten these increasing number of letters of gay men who were interested in this. Uh, they went to Pornhub and asked to see if they could get any data that would corroborate it. And the, Pornhub provided some information showing that searches for gay cuckolding were on the rise. So they wrote a short paper about it. And then they sent it to me to just review and comment on. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, this is really fascinating, really interesting, but you guys really should have some data. Uh, so, <laughs> right, like... <laughs> so we sat down and we designed a study, conducted it, and then the, the rest is history. <laughs> uh, tell, us, tell us briefly about who your participants were, what your study did and asked about, like, what is this data that you helped them collect? So we conducted an online survey of approximately 580 mostly gay-identified men. Um, we recruited them through uh, my website and social media channels, through Dan Savage's column, through through other places online. And it was specifically advertised as a study of gay men's cuckolding fantasies. So there was a little bit of a selection effect in terms of who participated. Um, but they completed a survey where they described these fantasies that they have in detail, told us about the elements that they find most arousing, and then we asked a bunch of questions about their other sexual fantasies, their sexual histories, and their personalities. Based on all this, what do these fantasies look like in gay men? Are they similar to straight couples? What are some of the most common elements? What do we know about gay cuckolding? Gay men and straight men, in terms of their cuckolding fantasies, are similar in the sense of they tend to focus on wanting to watch their partner engage in penetrative intercourse with another man. Um, okay, the I, I basics, we not, got the basics down yeah. the same. <laughs> yeah, so, so the basics are are there. But beyond that, there's, there's a lot of variability. So we didn't find much in the way of BDSM themes present in gay men's cuckolding fantasies. There wasn't as much of an emphasis on uh, the big penis themes. There were almost no participants who mentioned an interracial theme. Mm. Um, so, so we saw a lot of differences that emerged there. How come? How do you explain this? Because the big black cock kind of idea of of cuckolding of the bull being a, a black man, what very well endowed is huge in in the pardon the pun, <clears throat> right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I did not yeah. see that yeah. um, in the in the straight uh, cuckolding kind of scenario. Why do you think it's not here? It's a great question, and we don't know for sure. But the way I think about it is that. In the straight men's cuckolding fantasies, there's kind of a lot of taboos wrapped up there all in one, right? The the interracial, the big penis, the, the sharing of your partner, um, the BDSM. The bisexuality uh, component, perhaps. The, Right. So it's, it's, there's a lot of things that in the heterosexual community, you know, if you're a heterosexual white married man, um, all of those things are really, really taboo. But if you're a gay man, the interracial thing isn't so much of a taboo, nor is the big penis thing mm -hmm. or uh, the, the BDSM thing. You know, we know that from other research that gay men are, are more likely to have experienced or practiced BDSM and mm. um, they're more likely to be in interracial relationships. So it might just be that for gay men, those other elements are less novel to them. Mm. And so they're not as big 
components of their cuckolding fantasies. So they're g- getting something different completely out of it than what the straight people are. I mean, obviously the end result's the same, but they're in it for different reasons. Th- that's what our data seem to suggest, is that the parts of cuckolding fantasies that are appealing may be different based mm-hmm. on men's sexual orientation. Um, but even within men of a certain sexual orientation group, there's wide variability. You know, there were some gay men who who did talk about interracial elements or who did talk about BDSM. I think one of the really cool things about our study is that it shows that these fantasies are very much contextualized to meet an individual's needs. So we found that cuckolding fantasies were related to people's personality traits and characteristics. The fact that cuckolding fantasies vary so much in their content probably says a lot more about us than anything. Mm. Funny enough, you did some additional analyses and you found that the less exclusively gay a man was, the more likely he was to say interracial and big penis were important, right? The guys who Mm. are kind of mostly gay or kind of maybe leaning bisexual, they were more likely to have these, these kinds of fantasies. Right. Yeah, that that was super fascinating to me that, you know, on the Kinsey scale, the closer they were to heterosexual, the more that their fantasies looked like the traditional or not traditional, uh, but more more typical heterosexual cuckolding fantasies. So it, it kind of makes me wonder if maybe among bisexual men or men who are kind of somewhere in between heterosexual and gay, that they have different cuckolding fantasies and maybe their fantasies are different depending upon whether their partner is male or female. Uh, so I think it would be worth doing additional research where we expand this and not just look at gay men, but also bi and uh, heterosexual men and kind of do the comparison of all those groups at the same time. Yeah, I'd love to see the the comparison. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Next next step, please. <laughs> yeah. Follow-up study. Yes. Yeah. Many of these guys had um, had these fantasies quite often, right? This for, for the people who took your study, this was a pretty frequent desire, right? Right. So everybody who participated in the study had to have had cuckolding fantasies before. And more than a third of the participants said that they had these fantasies every day. And, you know, about half said they had them, you know, at least once a month. So, you know, these are people who are fantasizing about cuckolding a lot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And how many of them had acted out on them? So it was about half of the participants who had actually acted out their cuckolding fantasies before. And the rest, did they want to do it, given the chance, or did they want to keep it as a fantasy? It was a mix, um, but most people said that they wanted to act on their sexual fantasies specific to cuckolding in the future. Do any of the gay couples that are into the cuckolding, do they want to see their uh, significant other with a woman? Could that be, is that part of it? I'm, I'm just curious, because I know, you know, sometimes to just to, even to expand the fantasy to see their partner uh, with a woman, does that come into play? You know, we did have some participants who said that, but we focused our analyses on those individuals who had gay cuckolding cool. fantasies where they wanted to watch their partner with another man. So there are there are some gay men or bisexual men who want to watch their male partners have sex with women. We didn't focus on that here in this paper because we think that that might be a somewhat different phenomenon in terms of you know what it is that's arousing or what they're looking for. So I'd love to do some follow-up work on that, but we just didn't get into that here. Let's talk a little bit about what really got you in trouble with the media. Mm. <laughs> the, <laughs> the kind of the what this experience for the people who had acted on it on their cuckolding fantasies, what that had done to their relationship and whether it was a positive or negative experience. So you asked a bunch of questions a- around that. What did you find? So for the most part, 
people who had acted on their cuckolding fantasies said that the experience was a very good one and that it actually improved their relationship, um, which I think is a really important point because a lot of people would assume, oh, well, if, if you're opening up your relationship and other people are having sex with your partner, um, there's going to be jealousy and resentment and it's going to lead the relationship to crumble. And that, that's not what we found. In fact, it actually seemed to improve the relationships for the most part. Again, there's, there's always wide individual variability with this, but the overall trend was people reported positive experiences. I'm looking at, at the data and I think 8% only reported that it harmed their relationship. Right. Now, one thing that's important to keep in mind is that maybe the people who had bad experiences didn't take our survey. So maybe they're not reflected in here. But, you know, at least of the data that we have, the, the results suggest that it's a largely positive experience. CNN covered our study and they ran a headline that said, cuckold can be positive for some couples, study says, and that turned into a huge thing. Um, people did not want to hear that because like <laughs> I said, there's this, there's this presumption that if other people are having sex with your partner, that that's going to ruin the relationship. So we had this insane response on Twitter and uh, a lot of conservative and alt-right publications and websites were, were going on and on about our perverse findings. They were attacking us personally as the researchers and uh, criticizing the study and um, doing everything possible they could to try and undermine the findings and uh, discredit us in an attempt to invalidate this claim. Yeah, so some of the crazy response. Let, let me just read a couple uh, responses. Someone said, mm, is this CNN or Cosmo? I'm ah. so confused and grossed out at the same time. What is going on at CNN? Uh, there were also um, a, a lot of people referring to CNN as the cuckold news network, which was... Oh, that's funny. pretty cool. Um, <laughs> if you don't own that one, that's good. Now, Justin, you didn't see that coming? Or, oh, Jesus. Uh, again, sorry the pun. But did you did, did you have <laughs> did you have any idea there would be some backlash for, with this study? None. Uh, really, really, a, you didn't see this was, coming. Stop no, saying this that. was a it was a total surprise to me. I mean, I've I've been a sex researcher for a long time, um, and uh, you know when the paper first came out in December, it didn't really get much of a media reaction. So, you know, I didn't expect that when CNN covered it, that it was going to turn into this huge thing and mm -hmm. that there would be all these um, attacks from from the alt-right against me or against the work. I just, I, I really didn't see it coming. Um, but part of the reason that I think it generated the reaction that it did is because the CNN piece in the first paragraph talked about how cuck and cuckservative are slurs that are often used um, <laughs> by those in the alt-right to uh, emasculate their their targets. So there, there's actually kind of this little political there element to it as well. Yeah. There was a jab that, at the conservatives, yeah. I think it's emblematic of the current political environment that we're in where I see some of my colleagues who are getting death threats or they've got people who are filing anonymous complaints about them in an attempt to hinder and hold up their work. Um, there's this growing resentment against sex researchers that, that we're seeing and it's, it's kind of scary. So how did you handle it? You personally, did you just kind of like go in a cocoon and hide or did you battle back with data? Yeah. I mean, I didn't get really involved in, um, any responding debates? actively on, yeah. on social media because a lot of the people who are making attacks are people that I don't think you can reason with. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, there are people who were claiming that our study and uh, CNN's coverage of it was, quote, destroying Western civilization. Oh, my God. And, wow. <laughs> yes. Congratulations, Justin. <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, your fault. It's your plan. <laughs> Bring so. it down. That's 
serious power, man. So you laid yeah. back. You didn't respond to anyone on social media because we had. A, remember that doctor we had a few weeks ago? He actually oh called God. back and wrote back to everyone who had a problem with the study. Yeah, Michal Kaczynski, the the guy who did the AI gaydar study. Remember that one? He like responded to everyone who tweeted at him or emailed him. Yeah, and you know, as someone who has been involved in media work um, and disseminating sex science for years, I just I don't have the time or energy Good. to go back anymore and try to correct everybody who who gets something wrong, especially people who you know make these very outlandish claims. You know, there were also some people who said very disparaging things against me. There was this strong thread of anti-Semitism that came out that was really oh, interesting. Really? Where wow. yeah, people said, well, hey, all the study authors are Jewish and Jews are secret communists who are trying to destroy uh, Western civilization and values. Oh Therefore, yeah, and I'm like, <laughs> that, that's interesting. A, because I'm not Jewish, but B, because it's like, <laughs> yeah. what's what does this? Where is this anti-Semitism coming from, and what does it have to do with with any of it? Yeah. So it's just. <laughs> So wow. many of the critiques and criticisms are like, what can I do with that? I can't reason yeah. with somebody who would say something like that. Do you see this going anywhere in, in, in terms of that whole media coverage? Uh, um, so, so it really exploded for a few days and it seems to have died down. So I think, you know, it's, it, it, it ran its news cycle and they're on the lookout for the next outrage uh, sure. to, to yeah. jump on. So, so, you know, as with most things, it's just like a little flash in the pan and it goes away, yeah. which is another reason why I didn't feel like I had to get super invested in yeah, right. um, explaining or defending myself. Right. <laughs> Although I bet your Twitter notifications for a couple of days look pretty interesting, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for, for being on the show. I highly recommend to anyone interested in the science of sexuality to check out Justin's blog, which is at laymiller.com. If you're a professor teaching a human sexuality class, Justin has a textbook on human sexuality, which I use uh, with my NYU students, and I love, and my students absolutely love. Thank you for writing that book. Seriously. <laughs> well, thanks for using it. And the second edition just came out, which I think is even better than the first. I can't wait to use it next semester. And then you have, again, tell us about the new book coming out, when and what it's called. Yeah, it's called Tell Me What You Want, uh, and it comes out this summer, and it's based on uh, a survey I did of thousands of Americans about their sexual fantasies, and it looks at what we want, why we want it, and how we can get what we want. Uh, so, Ooh. so it's partially, you know, designed to educate people about the science of sexual desire, but also uh, a little bit of a self-help book in a sense, in terms of giving people some guidelines and uh, information for how they might go about talking about their fantasies with a partner and, and potentially acting on them. Well, Justin, thanks for joining us on the show, and thank you for single-handedly being responsible for destroying Western civilization. <laughs> so on both those counts, we thank you very much. Thanks for having me. The Science of Sex Afterglow. Dr. John, there was a book written a long time ago. I think it was like Stephen King, Great Expectations. Now, <laughs> right, sure, that was definitely one Stephen of King. Yeah. What men expect, Right. Their expectations are a little off. And there's a new study that say men and women have different expectations when it comes to sex, and it's obviously become very problematic. The key stat of this survey of 1,000 people between the ages of 18 and 25. So here's the key one, uh, Dr. Jana. Process this for me, my sex scientist. 45% of men surveyed said they expect vaginal sex from someone who goes home with them after a party. 
Okay. So nearly half of the men, okay. if they were to take you home after a party, are expecting to get laid. Okay. That's the expectation. Here's the sticky wicket. 31% of women said the same. So there's a 14% difference that women are going home with a man are probably not on the same page as that okay. dude. Okay. And that is going back to the term great expectations. <laughs> Guys have all expect all this in a relationship or non-relationship with a woman, and the woman doesn't see it that way. Okay. And now we've into this world. And I'm surprised that number is actually not more disparaging. Yeah, right? so uh, let's un- try to unpack this, yes. I guess. People have expectations. Absolutely, right? We go into all sorts of situations with certain expectations. And I am not at all surprised that 45% of men expect to to get laid when they go home with someone. Of course, I'm not exactly sure how this question was asked, if this is all the question asked or if there was more detail provided in what the exact situation is. I mean, is this a stranger? Is this someone that you know? Is this someone that you've already established some kind of sexual relationship Mm -hmm. with before, right? So those expectations are going to be different depending on these things. But not having much more context to this because, again, this is not an academic sure. study. This is from a digital health startup founded at Harvard Business School. So we don't have too much more information about the exact specifics. So that aside. That aside. Let's put that aside. Let's put that aside. Yeah. Exactly what expectations means. Mm. Like you can interpret expectations as I expect as an I demand, right? That yeah. if if you go home with me, then you better have sex with me. And and that's one way of interpreting the word Mm. expectation. Another way is I expect that you also want to have sex with me. Right, because you're coming home with me. Yeah, you're coming home with me. And since I want to get laid with you, I hope, Mm -hmm. I expect that you have the same desire. So it's a lot... I think some people will tend to read this, oh, men are expecting as in this more ominous, if yeah. you will, interpretation of, of what they're saying when they say, I expect yeah. to get laid, whereas there is a much more benevolent way of interpreting it as in we both share this desire to have sex with yeah. each other. And if I then see that you don't want that, then fine kind yeah. of thing, right? So, and and without having more... Context. Yes. Again, we're putting the context yeah. aside. We, we just can't know yeah. what percentage of men had, had this more ominous versus the more benevolent right. kind of way of, of thinking about the expectation. Weren't you weren't you surprised that it was not more than, I mean, this was 45%. I expect, I thought that number would be higher because for of the men. Fa- for men, mm-hmm. because I think there's like that automatic assumption of a man, they think, Okay, so why would this woman come to my place just to check out my furniture? You know what I mean? I think you know the, that there is something between checking out furniture and actually having penetrative sex, right? There's thank a few you. steps. There are, but I think <laughs> men jump to that conclusion as to there's no other, like I'm telling you, there's mm-hmm. they're thinking there's no other godly reason why this woman would want to come to my place. No, no, no. That's that's taking things too simplistically, which people very often tend to yeah. do that it's either or that all men want to get laid all the time right. and uh, all women never want to get laid unless there's a ring on yes. her finger, right. which is obviously silly. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of men, research on nationally representative samples of Americans shows that 40 or so, 40 or 50% of men in the U.S. find casual sex with a complete stranger appealing. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, Oh my God, they all want to do that. Yeah. So, of course, I agree that most men will think 
something will happen or she's interested in something yeah. sexual happening, but not necessarily going all the way. So yeah. I'm sure I'm, I'm not at all surprised that there is more than half of, of the men in the sample saying not expecting intercourse, yeah. expecting probably if you ask them, do you expect a kiss? Do you expect some making out yeah. kind of thing? Then probably that that number would be much higher. Well, going back to the word expectations, mm-hmm. I mean, we've been taught the term expectations was thrown around when it came to. I immediately thought of the the date rule, like first date you don't expect you don't expect to get late. <laughs> Second date, but then you start then people start to rationalize. Okay, I believe in the three date rule that you would have sex with someone on the third date right. or the fourth date. That's mm-hmm. going back to expectations, mm-hmm. but now it's taking a whole different meaning. Because now the, that date rule has, because of the, this hook, hookup culture, but, that, but, we're not talking right, about dates anymore. But right now, there really aren't rules. There are so many different rules. There's yeah. so many different subcultures and sub-environments. In some environments, there still is a three-day rule or yeah. something. And, and I think different people, depending on their personalities, depending on their environment, depending on the partners they're with, they're going to have different kinds of expectations about yeah. how they want to go about things. And yeah, sure, if you're more part of the hookup culture, you might expect a fair amount of sexual activity to happen the first time you go home with someone. Yeah. Whereas if it's more of a traditional date, you might have a different... Ex- so th- there is no one way to do things. There are just so many different ways to go about yeah. it. And ultimately, there's nothing wrong with having an expectation based on everything that we've learned in our lives and how we've been taught and all that. Of course, we're going to build expectations. There's nothing wrong with having an expectation as long as you're not going to pressure someone else into doing something that they right. don't want to do regardless mm-hmm. of your expectation. So that's where things become problematic, not, I think, as much in the expectation itself. Now, there are a couple of other findings of the survey that the Bustle article reported on that I find more problematic. And that's one of them is that almost a quarter of men, so that's 24% of the male participants, which again were 18 to 25 year olds, they agreed with the statement saying women usually have to be convinced to have sex. And then a third of women, 31%, basically said that they have had unwanted sex because somebody persisted. Mm. And these are cases of verbal coercion usually these are not cases of force like people very often don't make the distinction between what's forced sex versus coerced sex so force is when you're using things like physical force pinning somebody down or or uh, holding them or some sort of physical intimidation yeah or like holding a weapon uh threatening them uh, threatening to hurt physically hurt them or someone close to them those are more extreme cases of sexual assault and then there are many more cases out there of uh, verbal coercion which is this persistence this convincing right maybe she says no but then you try to say something else or you're like come on i don't like that word convincing to me it makes sense it's it's it sounds really dirty because it's almost like you're a car salesman it's like (laughs) i'll do whatever it takes i'll say whatever it takes to make you to have sex to me that that, that's actually obviously not very romantic but the (laughs) fact that you've got to sell her you know i could i already see like the 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 terminology like come on you know you want it you know Mm -hmm. come on Mm -hmm. hey listen you came back here what did you expect all Mm -hmm. these Yep. All these or, or just a little bit, just the tip, just, just the, t- the tip. <laughs> you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Let's just let's just see how it goes. Let's mm-hmm. play it by ear. Yeah, all of those are. That's why they're called verbal coercion techniques. Yeah. But they are verbal, so we should make the distinction between the physical stuff and mm-hmm. people threatening physical harm versus these yeah. more verbal psychological manipulation strategies that right. that uh, men might be. Uh, willing to use well, and reading into the stat you mentioned about the thirty-one percent mm-hmm. of women, they use the phrase 
unwanted sex. Mm -hmm. They're not using the phrase assault. They're just saying it's sex that I really... I didn't want, but because of verbal coercion, Mm -hmm. I just gave in on it. Right, right. Some definitions of sexual assault and the broader definition of sexual assault would include verbal coercion. Really? Okay. Yeah. So sex that happened under verbal coercion that somebody finally kind of relented and and gave in would still qualify as a type of sexual assault. It wouldn't be the same type. It wouldn't be rape because rape requires physical force or incapacitation like being wow. passed out drunk those that's what qualifies as rape so that wouldn't qualify as a crime without getting too de- deep in it the rabbit hole it would qualify as some form of rape and wow. it, depending on on the specific jurisdiction mm-hmm. this might get prosecuted at, at, at various kind of levels but this is it wouldn't be qualified as rape okay. it, legally in most jurisdictions that would not qualify as rape it would qualify as verbal coercion type of sexual assault now the key issue to some extent here is unwanted sex. Very often when you hear this, oh, women usually have to be convinced to have sex. And look, 25% of guys say they usually have to be convinced to have sex. 30% of women say that they got convinced, if you will, right? That basically they, they said yes to sex that they didn't particularly want because somebody persisted. So the guys are responding in some way to some of their personal experiences. If they tried to do that, if they tried to convince and it worked, that reinforces their behavior in some ways and says that women often will succumb to this continuous persistence. Now, what is really interesting is that very often we tend to present these issues of wanted versus unwanted sex as if it's a clear-cut kind of thing that you either want it enthusiastically, you're crazy about it and there is nothing there stopping you, or you absolutely do not want it. And the reality is that is so not true. That is absolutely inaccurate and it's completely crazy and harmful to think that it's either or. In fact, we have a lot of research evidence suggesting that very often there is an ambivalence towards the sex. There is this huge gray area, not of consent, but of how people feel whether they want it or not. Very often, people want some aspects of it, but don't want other aspects of it. Or they want it for some reasons, but they don't want it for other reasons. They might be horny and attracted, but they maybe don't want... Full-on sex at the moment. For for some other reason. Maybe they are not comfortable yet, or this or that. But on the other hand, they might want it, right? So so there is a lot of cases of ambivalence Mm -hmm. that people feel, And that's when very often they will give away signals of consent that are ambiguous, that it's not clear whether you want it or not, because you aren't sure whether you want it or not. But the problem with that is the fact that in in that sentence is the fact that women usually have to be convinced to have Mm -hmm. sex. I don't think it's registering in these men's heads that that's wrong. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I think Mm -hmm. them convincing sex is just a way of life. Oh, okay, I was able to talk her into having sex or, you know, persuading her. Yeah. That's yeah. not that's not right. Mm-hmm. But how do how do how these men learn that it's not right? Yeah, I mean, of course it's hard to learn because that behavior gets reinforced. It gets reinforced by all their male friends who say that that's how you get get laid. Yeah. It's reinforced by every single time a woman does give in yeah. to that kind of pressure. It gets reinforced every time um by popular culture, when you see a romantic comedy, when you see a woman mm-hmm, slap a guy mm-hmm, and, they don't, mm-hmm. and then two seconds later they're kissing. Right, exactly. So there's so many of these these signals yeah. that 
at least some of the time, that's how things work, that very often women will will pretend that they don't want it, but they actually do. And the reality is, very often, there is that ambivalence. So I think what we're now trying to do as a society is say, whenever there is ambivalence, you have to stop. Mm-hmm. Because that's not enthusiastic consent. So, so if you take this continuum of wantedness, right? Let's say enthusiastic consent is on one end of the spectrum. Absolutely, definitely not wanting, like the Harvey Weinstein yeah. kinds of cases of, of on the other end of the spectrum. And then the Aziz Ansari cases kind of in the middle because that case seemed like there was a, there was a lot of ambivalence. Like the, clearly she had some interest in being sexual right. with uh, Aziz. But there was this unclear, like, I don't really fully want it, but I kind of want it, I'm, uh, but I'm still staying here and hanging out, and I'm still kissing him, and I'm still doing these things. So there is that ambivalence. Right. So I think everybody is on board, and everybody's very clear, and it's a very easy decision to make that uh, you need to stop and not pressure physically or verbally yeah. when someone is definitely, absolutely not yeah, as, on the on the Harvey Weinstein end of the right. spectrum. As unromantic as it sounds, you almost have to take a time out and be like, "Hold on, yeah, let's stop what we're doing, put our clothes back on, and now let's have a discussion." I know it kills the mood, <laughs> but basically that's what you have to do. Yeah. So, so, so that's the question of what do we do with this ambivalent area of of wantedness? Like when you can tell, because what often happens is when people are in that ambivalent stage, like I kind of want it, but I'm not sure they often give off signals that are ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Because whether something is sexual assault or not doesn't depend on whether you want it or not. Doesn't depend on the wantedness of the sex. Depends on the consent being communicated to the other person. So that's another thing that people very often confuse is the wantedness and consent. Those are not the same thing. Consent is about what you have communicated to your partner that you want or Mm -hmm. not want. And wantedness is about your internal experience of how much you want it or not. So when you are ambivalent in terms of the wantedness, your internal experience is ambivalent, you're very likely to give off ambiguous signals of consent. And some people are better at reading those ambiguous signals of consent. Some people are not. If they're drunk, they're much yeah. less likely to be able to read ambiguous signals correctly. They're much more likely to ignore them. Yeah. And um, some people may actively ignore them, like the Aziz case, it seems like, I mean, he's not a 12-year-old boy. He's been around yeah, the block a few times. He's yeah. an adult. So he probably could tell that she wasn't being enthusiastically consent. He could tell that she was in that ambivalent state of wantedness, yet he kept he kept kind of pushing verbally for, uh, for that to happen. So I think the key is to try to get people to notice mm-hmm. these ambiguous signals and interpret them as ambivalence. And then take a take a break, take right. a little time off instead of trying to push to get to a yes. Just mm-hmm. give people some space to make the decision to stop being ambivalent and yeah. decide what they want. Uh, yeah, it's not as sexy, perhaps, no. but very often the the thing that you do get is the person comes back to you with enthusiastic consent. If you keep pushing that ambivalent person, you keep verbally pressuring them until they give in. You might get laid, but it's not going to be very good. Yeah. You might get yes to something that that person didn't fully want to do, and it's not going to be very good sex. Whereas if you give them some space, uh, very often people will come back maybe later that night, maybe the next day or whenever, and they're going to come back with enthusiastic consent, and you're going to get much better experience. And how about this? What if she doesn't or he doesn't come back with sex? You know what? 
Life goes on. Oh, yeah. You don't, Certainly. You don't get late that <laughs> yeah. night. You don't get late that weekend. You know what? Too bad, so sad. Certainly. Let's move on. So maybe and to close this out, let's say sexual timeouts. Next time you're in a situation where there's ambivalence going on or some sort of communication issue between two people, one of the two of you guys should say, timeout. Mm-hmm. Hold on. Let's sit with our clothes on. Let's get at the dinner table. Let's, mm-hmm. let's talk this out. Yep. And if both of you guys do not agree on something... Then get the hell out of there. The date's over, and then or go find somebody else. I think that's an absolutely perfect rule of thumb for providing a great, positive sexual experience for yeah. everybody involved. I think what our culture is right now struggling with is what to do or how to label the experiences when that doesn't happen. Yeah. When the the we don't take the time out and we don't read the signals the ambiguous signals very well or we i don't know if it, maybe if we ignore them on purpose then there should be a blame design yeah. but if we just ignore them because we don't perceive them then are we still guilty yeah. or not is that still sexual assault or is that the other person being kind of clueless and just not reading ambiguous signals very well and or that person's history or maybe for years he's sure. had to coerce a woman and to him it's never been an issue no one's ever said <laughs> yeah. you know cried foul of something and to him it's just oh, okay it's just a normal way of getting laid i've got to really do a massive sell job to bang this girl and then then, then that's it but unfortunately that's a that's another problem but we don't have time to fix this, okay. these problems okay. we cannot fix this but we have come to some sort of conclusion <laughs> as communication is the key talk things out mm-hmm. as much as it yeah. doesn't in- look like a romantic it's not 50 shades of gray it's not romantic it doesn't look like something in the movies yeah. but it's real and you need to do it i mean yeah i think the, the the bottom line for how to have great sex that nobody regrets at the and nobody goes home feeling violated is if you're not sure that this person really wants it take it as a no mm-hmm. assume that they are a no in that moment for the time being they may change their mind they might not but take maybe as a no okay i like that and we, I love ending the show on a positive note. It's, it's always nice how we put a little bow at the end of it, Dr. Jana. We do our best. Really nice yes. job. And if you like the bow that we put on the show, <laughs> tell your friends. Uh, make sure you rate us on iTunes if, if that's how you listen to us. Give us a few stars. You could throw some feedback our way. Let us know what you think of the Science of Sex podcast. Dr. Jana, did I miss anything? Got all the housekeeping done? We're all good? We're all good. All right. Well, I see you back here next week. Next week it is. Say yes. Because I want to have verbal confirmation that you'll be back. Yes, I will be back. <laughs> and I fully consent to us doing another show next week. Awesome. Dr. Enthusiastically consent. Oh, I love yes. the enthusiasm. I love doing the show with you, Joe. All right, stop faking it. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepartavila.com. Like us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at Forbes.com. This has been The Science of Sex. 